0: Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net
1: Featuring the vocal talents of Stephen H. Wilson Stephanie Sawyer Chris Lester George Clinsos. Kitty McKeon
0: With original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode 14.
2: Hi, this is Heather Welliver, co-host of Grail Wolf's Geek Life and lead singer of The Shillas. You're listening to Antithesis, book one, and this is the story so far. Douglas Reeves has been busy. Between his hefty docket as a high court judge and a member of the Board of Governors, he's found time to maintain a relationship with his partner Jade and to run a clandestine revolutionary network. He's worried about the future of Luna and about the terrorist campaign that seems to come from within his own organization. When last we saw him, he sent a commission to Jim and Allie Hartman, presumably asking for their help finding the culprit. Now he's investigating other matters close to home. Cassie Orenthal, underworld boss and revolutionary, is also worried about security problems. One of the members of the Lunar Dock Workers Union has made an unauthorized trip to Space Station Nineveh to sell stolen information to a friend of hers, information a mere dock worker shouldn't have access to. Suspicious of her lieutenant's loyalties, she is resolved to look into the matter herself.
0: Thurston Appleby Shaw shifted his gaze down from the light pipe panels. His attempt to abate his irritation with a disciplined count to ten was about as successful as his boyhood attempts to teach voles to fetch. Then again, he thought, as his eyes settled on the obsequious belligerent in front of him, at least that experiment had netted him a nickname.
1: Look, I don't care who said it was okay. Nothing gets through without...
0: A loud klaxon sounded, signaling the imminent depressurization of the bay. Thurston waved his arm sharply at the control room, but to no avail. He grabbed a radio from his belt. There's people on the deck! Close it down! Voice. We've got a transport from the ring scheduled to dock in. I don't care if
1: you have Gabriel bringing Christ knickers on a blatant chariot full of slave boys. The door stays shut!
0: The klaxon grudgingly abated.
1: I want your arse in my office in 15 minutes.
0: He switched off rather than waiting for protest. I was saying. He returned his attention to the greasy sod who ostensibly captained the sorry heap of a ship sitting on the number four loading dock.
1: Nothing, but nothing. No drugs, no plants, no animals, no bleeding baskets of grandma's ashes. Get through without going through at least an inspection. Right now, I'm going to throw it into full quarantine without an inspection if you don't shut up and move along. Your rocket-powered apple cart is holding up the line. Get into the airlock so we can move the next ship in.
0: He led the captain to the airlock, showed him in first, and did a last scan over the dock to make sure it was clear. A woman in blue coveralls and a denim cap stood next to the stack of containers at the far end of the deck, watching him. He caught her eye and waved her off. She nodded and strode easily to the lock at the other end of the dock. Thurston stepped into the lock and cycled it shut. Now you... He turned to the captain, who was evidently too blind stupid to get on his way and find a sleep locker for the night.
1: Get out of here. You'll be notified when we're done.
0: The chastened man slunk out the exit.
1: God damn it, where the fuck is Walters?
0: Thurston took three rights into the control room, and then a fourth back into his office. He sat down at his desk, looked up at the door, and bellowed.
1: Ryzen, get your ass in here! Volish, you said fifteen. I know what I said, you twit!
0: Ryzen, the scrawny trainee that was filling in for Walters, and poorly, shuffled through the door.
1: What the hell are you thinking, letting a ship in here when there are people on the dock? There's no da- No danger! Son, of you looked out through a portal recently, had a chance to bounce down a hallway. Has it remotely occurred to you that you're up in the sky like fucking Superman? I'm not a moron. You aren't? Ryzen, you just started a small craft dock cycle on a loading dock on a planet with no atmosphere. You did take biology, didn't you? Occurs to you that men generally breathe air, don't it? Chewing on vacuum at negative 25 sounded like getting a blowjob at the lake, did it? It's an airlock, Volish. Air. Lock. Means it ain't likely to leak vacuum. That's kind of the point of the things. And I suppose they never fail when you're moving ships that weigh thousands of tons around like Barbie dolls. Do you know what it takes to cause a leak? Those doors are sealed with rubber gaskets, my boy. It don't take a sodden lock to make them get all squirmy on you. Project every... And I don't even get into the matter of moving around that much metal on a populated platform. It has dawned on you that the physics involved in a tower of bomb-powered scrap metal giving a friendly shove to a meter and a half of meat and toothpicks means you're going to be swabbing the fucking deck with bleach to get the stains out. Volish Shut your trap. You've lost speech privileges in this room, kiddo. This doc has a book. And we run by it, down to the nearest bloody comma. And if we don't, bad things happen. Very bad things. Things that you'll dream about when you're 90 and wishing you could get that cute Missy at the end of the bar to stop thinking of her grandpa when she looked at you. You sat through six months of drilling and training on those procedures before you got your posting here. There is no excuse for that kind of slipshod work. First, you dock the ship on the dolly. Then, you give the all-clear signal. Once it's answered back, then you check the dock lock status. If all the doors aren't sealed, you fucking seal them! Then, and only then, once everyone's inside and all the doors are closed, then you can cycle the lock. Do you get me?
0: Ryzen stood stock still.
1: It's okay for you to talk to answer me.
0: Ryzen nodded, defiance still spread across his face like liquid shit.
1: Yeah, I get you. Good. You're suspended until you get recertified. You'll get three-quarter pay as long as you show up to class. Now get off my dock and don't come back until you're ready to operate here like an adult.
0: Ryzen opened his mouth and closed it again, uselessly trying to remember the English language. He gave up, nodded, and stalked out of the office.
1: Somebody got to kick some sense into that kid.
0: He grumbled as he stood and walked back into the control nest.
1: Okay, what do we got? Scheduled transport from the ring sliding into loading dock C now.
0: Another two on the way.
1: Any empty slots the right size for him?
0: Looks like slots
1: G and J are open. Ferguson has the ball. Well, boys, lube them up and slide 'em on in. We got cargo to move.
0: Thurston slid his eyes over the bank of monitors and spotted the woman from earlier talking to Ryzen out in the main corridor.
1: Well, now what are you doing here, Ferguson? I gotta check something. Coming here. Roger, Bowler. Should I buck customs inspections upstairs? Yeah. Don't let anything get through without a once over. I don't want those straight boys up at CID coming down here again and looking up our skirts. Keep the dock as tight as an altar, boy. I'll check out any exceptions when I'll get back. Just set them off to the side. Will do.
0: Thurston strolled out of the control room and then broke into a jog. The woman was haunting his dock without a badge. Was she C.I.D.? Badge or no, she should have been cleared through him. And he sure as hell wasn't going to let Ryzen give her what she was looking for. The cargo bay halls, white like a hospital, fell past him as he ran to the north access hatch where the bay linked up with the rest of the spaceport.
1: There you are.
0: He rounded the last corner just as Ryzen was disappearing through the hatch into the terminal. She, whoever she was, was making notes on a PPD, leaned up against the wall like a boy who wasn't quite comfortable in his skin yet. Pity. Hi. She turned and faced him as he bounded to a stop in front of her, then nearly collapsed as the oxygen caught up with his brain.
1: Jesus, you'd think I'd been sucking on the ethylene hoses. Are you okay? I'm fine, girly.
0: He took a couple measured breaths, then stood straight again and eyeballed her.
1: I want to know what you're doing on my dock.
3: Ah, you must be volish.
1: Been talking to Ryzen.
3: Well, you can't really call it talking but he did recommend
1: you for the job of Antichrist. Let me know when the position opens up, will you? it will save me from dealing with damn fool kids like him.
0: Tall, youngish, brown eyebrows trailing to red in the corners. Not the type that CID usually put on Snoop Jobs. They wanted blokes who could go up toe-to-toe with the dock Rats. Bucking cargo for a living wasn't too great
1: for the brain, but it
0: didn't do half bad by a hard body.
1: None of that explains who you are and what the hell you're doing in here without clearance.
0: Got somewhere we can talk?
1: Depends. What are we going to talk about?
3: I'm trying to find one of your boys.
1: Look, lady, my boys are my business. Take your questions back to your editor and leave me alone.
3: I'm not a reporter, Mr. Shaw. The green lady
0: sent
1: me. The green lady, eh?
0: He ran the tips of his fingers over the close-cropped beard on his chin.
1: Well, she won't hear. We pay our dues. She's looking for Scott Walters. Well, then...
0: He regarded her again. She played with a stacked deck this, and he couldn't afford to piss off the Green Lady. He reached down to his belt and picked up his handset.
1: Ferguson, I'm gonna be a while. Hold it down there.
0: <laughs> Thurston replaced the handset, then led the girl out into the broad half pipe and over to a sofa next to a fountain, still near enough the hatch that he could make it back in an emergency. Ferguson was sharp. He'd call if he got in over his head. The dock didn't run itself.
1: So, since when does the lady care about what the cargo buckers do with their free time?
3: The lady doesn't reveal her intentions to me. She says jump.
1: She
0: cocked an eyebrow at him in what he supposed was a flirt. He shuddered.
1: I jump. I can I stroll over there toward the passenger terminal?
0: Thurston nodded past her at a dashing 30-something porter pushing a cart. Tight arms, broad shoulders, long legs. Delectable.
3: Very nice. And...
0: She looked back at him, and he made sure she caught him checking the porter out. Her eyes opened wider.
3: Oh.
1: Now, we understand each other. Doc rats are the new priesthood.
3: I was wondering where you were all hiding.
1: Well, where else can you be surrounded by it and not have to worry about accidentally picking up the wrong bloke? It's not the art, sweetie. We ain't dancers or choir boys. Most of us here are second or third generation. The rest were shipped here for one damn thing or another. Ain't got the money or the manner or the temperament to play desk arse. And we're exposed to enough radiation by our third year that we're basically infertile. So the pay ain't high enough for family men. Mostly, it's just us bachelors.
3: Understood. Sorry.
1: Skip it. Ask your questions. We don't want to keep the lady waiting.
3: How long did you know him?
1: Walters? He's been on my crew for years. Good man. Never missed a day in his life I didn't send him home for coming in two off his game.
0: Thurston stopped. She was reporting to the lady. She didn't need the gory details.
1: He was a good good'un. Thorough worker. Generous. Real sweet old cock. He'd give you his left nut if he'd make the day go any better. Where'd he go? Fucked if I know. He left a message, some rubbish about his mom dying out on Nineveh. He'd be back in a few months. Out of nowhere. Thing is, he told me once that his mom had died a few years back in some accident. Bloody peculiar. I figured the old sod got itchy and wanted out.
3: So he just left a message one day and never showed up?
0: She was scribbling on her PPD like a bleeding stenographer.
1: If the lady finds something, what will she do to him? Will she send this little wisp of a girl out after him?
3: Volish.
0: He focused back on her and inclined his head.
3: I suggest...
0: She paused long enough that he knew it was anything but a suggestion.
3: That you cooperate. I don't have to tell you what happens when the lady gets peaked.
1: I run my dock, and I don't give much of a fig about anything else.
3: You run a dock that almost got caught letting smugglers through last year, and now your second is missing. That's bad, Volish. Security is the lady's game, and you're a hole in it.
0: She had him. Not such a wisp after all. But she wouldn't shut him down.
1: She can't be that stupid. If the lady is interested, Scott's in trouble. Or is trouble. Look, I don't know who the old is. I run a tight dock up here. Nothing gets through without orders from the lady's right hand.
3: She's gonna take convincing.
1: I keep logs that make her larch look like a bleeding toothpick, girlie. She's welcome to inspect them any time.
3: You have her box number. Drop them in. I'm sure it'll help allay her suspicions.
1: Sweet Jesus, she's good at this.
3: So come on, Bolish. tell me what happened. Why did he leave?
1: Thurston sighed. You promise me you won't let the lady space him?
3: What makes you think I have that kind of influence?
1: Let me tell you something, Red. The green lady ain't no tosser. I hear tell that she killed ten men with a cheese knife when she was only as high as my hip. took Darkseid as her own when she was all of 17. She don't lose, and she don't send in a little girl to do an enforcer's job. If she sent you down here, she trusts you. And sure as the secret gospel, she tells you a damn sight more than you're letting on.
0: She nodded, smiling slightly.
3: Go on, then.
1: He had a new boy. Some kid fresh off a boat. Met him up at one-eyed Jack's place. Came in next morning, smitten kitten. Starry-eyed. Couldn't put his mind on the dock. He loved that man. Wouldn't stop talking about him. Tyler was all he could talk about. Wattles was always in early, but after he met Tyler, he was late every morning, taking off early every night, always a smile wider than the sky. Then he vamoosed, up and fucking gone overnight. His boy, too, both of them, like they was raptured. Morning he didn't show up, went up to his flat, banged on the door. They didn't answer. I figured they couldn't be roused for heaven the hell, so I went back to the nest. That's where I got the note. I tell you, Red, something about this stinks.
0: He shook his head, realizing that under his irritation he really was
1: worried about his old flame. Hope he's okay. That new boy of his hasn't buggered him and left him iron dry. The girl nodded.
3: What else can you tell me?
1: That's all I got. You tell that lady of yours I don't like you nosing around my dock and talking to my people. Next time she wants something, she can talk to the right hand, or if she has to, she can talk to me, but this...
0: He leaned forward and thumped the bill of her cap.
1: Cloaked up bullshit don't carry water where I come from. If you all down there want to see your cargo get lost, you just keep in a fear and ear, Or pray that Jesus remembers where he left us at, because short of that, you won't break the dock rats open. You don't have the balls.
3: I'll carry your message, Mr. Shaw. That'll be all.
0: He stood up, harumphed, and looked down at her. This little girl was perhaps the only hope he had of ever seeing Walters again. God was cruel after all.
1: You find Scott, you bring him back. Yeah me?
3: If we find him, we'll bring him back.
0: She nodded politely at him, dismissing him. Thurston Appleby Shaw walked towards the hatch, open on the gangway to his dock, without a backward glance. Three steps through the opening, he was out of sight. Cassie watched for a further second to be sure he was gone, then stood and headed north through the west gate into the bazaar. She needed to get back to her office. By the time she did, Shaw's email would be there. But she was taking enough of a risk with one trip out to do her own legwork. Who else could she trust with it when even Xylar seemed to be working his own angle? One she couldn't get a handle on... yet. If Jaws hadn't been so damn irritating and all the way out on Nineveh, she might have set him at it. Of course, then she'd actually have to think about him. At this distance, she had the luxury of ignoring him. She didn't have to think about his goddamned analytical brain, his cold calculations, or how they both seemed to melt away when he went to bed at night. It was better this way. At a distance, where she didn't have to kill him. The plaque on the wall read, Level 38, Subsection 43. It was the old quarter of the city, the corridors and tunnels carved out by Kaiser when Luna City had been nothing more than a leper colony. Despite the general attitude of civic pride, the age of the city showed... The once bright colors on the walls were drab with scuffing and irregular washing, and the floors were gouged and worn with a hundred years of feet, carts, people-movers, and grab lifts. In general, the whole place had firmly passed the comfortably lived-in phase and was now slouching quietly towards dilapidation, and it would keep on doing so until the current crop of leases ran out in another twenty years. Cassie knew this, because she owned most of the leases in the quarter. When they expired, the entire area would be closed down for a refit, and then released. Scott Walter's apartment lay down a side tunnel that stretched west between an Italian restaurant and a place called You Build Fab Lab, evidently a personal manufacturing for rent shop. The door was plastered with bumper stickers trumpeting the depth of his devotion to the Mortonites. The door was locked, as she'd expected. She walked a couple doors down and leaned against a wall. Cassie used her PPD to access her title database, found the lease agreement on the flat, and used her encryption key to query the landlord override for the lock code. At this time of day, the hallway was clear and quiet. She looked both ways but didn't see anyone for the length of the passageway. She surreptitiously pulled on a pair of gloves. The door slid open, and Cassie covered the ten meters to the dark opening and secreted herself inside. The electric whirr took the lights away behind her. Lights! The computer didn't respond.
3: Keyed the environmental controls to his voice print?
0: Perhaps. She pulled an LED flashlight out of her hip pocket and clamped it between her teeth, the pressure toggling on the power. Sweeping her searchlight through the dark, she lighted on an active surface end table. It wouldn't respond.
3: Damn it, what did he do? Crash his home network on his way out?
0: There was nothing for it but to toss the place by torchlight. She might as well be hiding in the ducts again. The beam swept across the tabletop. It was littered with old dishes and beer steins. A bookshelf and a cubby behind the couch contained a battered Book of Mormon, a Mortonite New Testament in pristine, almost treasured condition, and a small library of titles such as The Theft at Mar-Sabah, The Gagging of the Gospel, Clement and the Secret Gospel, and an antique-looking copy of Morton Smith's collected writings. The sand closet was undersized for the flat, and there was distressingly little of interest in there. A slight pressure was pushing on her bladder, but it wasn't urgent. She'd use it when she was done with her search. No hairs, no used razors, not a damn thing. The entire apartment had the air of staged disorder, Nothing was in its place. It felt like a dorm room, but there wasn't an unsanitary thing about it. Even the dirty dishes in the living room had only crumbs on them, and it gave her the creeps. Reflexively, she kept close to the walls and low, and did not flash her light ahead of her as she walked. The bedroom was damn near a bordello. The bedside lamp was a hand-toggle job. She turned it on and let out a low whistle... The entire room reeked of masculinity.
3: Yep, he's a Mortonite, all right.
0: Low-burned candles covered every surface. Small ceremonial bottles of olive oil were everywhere. A reproduction of Michelangelo's crucifix hung on the wall in all its pouty, pederastic glory. Prayer beads and loincloths hung on a rack recessed into the wall near the door. You couldn't live on Luna and not hear every goddamn detail about every goddamn ceremony that the goddamn Mortonites performed. They made the Scientologists look like lapsed Catholics, and their pretense of secrecy was hardly even that. Foot washings, oil anointings, initiation ceremonies, sacred sex, holy kisses, hospitality prayers, ritual massage. It was enough to make one want to open up a body shop, except that women wouldn't be invited. Scott Walter's favorite religion was for men... only. A small altar held a bowl with crumbs from a Eucharist ritual and a goblet with some dregs still in it.
3: He left in a hurry.
0: Cassie tapped her toe on the floor. Something didn't fit. The whole thing didn't fit at all. She squatted down and ran her flashlight around the baseboards looking for hidden compartments. Nothing. She lifted up the bedskirt and peered underneath.
3: Hello. What's this?
0: Her light... Lit on a discarded tube. She reached a gloved hand out and seized it, pulling it out from under the bed. Medication? Some kind of cream. She held it up to the light.
3: Lubriclean. Safe and gentle. Protects against all known intimate infections. How genteel.
0: There was nothing useful here. No baggage, no notes, no photos. There had to be a camera somewhere. Cassie opened the drawers in the bedside bureau, one after another. Coveralls, two spare skin press suits, underwear.
3: Good God, can a man actually wear something like that?
0: Dead PPDs.
3: A Mortonite and a gadget freak. The gods were really working overtime on this one. Jesus.
0: There, in the bottom drawer with the sex toys.
3: That figures.
0: She pulled it out of the drawer and powered it up, but before she could start flipping through the pictures, there was a scuffling noise at the front door. Cassie punched the lamp toggle and dove under the bed as she heard the pneumatics hiss to life. Two sets of footfalls, both male. The lights in the front room activated and spilled into the bedroom doorway. These older home systems keep the core memory in the floor under the main terminal. It'll take about five minutes. All right. A careful voice, familiar somehow. Here, help me move this. C.I.D. Shit. Getting caught breaking and entering and organizing the relevant bribes and pressure was not in the plans. Oh, man, this is an old one. Why don't you grab a seat? This will take a minute. Cassie forced her breath to stay slow and low. She could hear every rustle and breath from the other room. They surely would be able to hear her if she moved. Her bladder was screaming at her. She kicked herself for not using the sand closet when she first came in. One set of feet started wandering around while the other man rattled here and there with a tool kit. The footfalls were approaching. Cassie held her breath. Two boots. Formal ones. Expensive. They clopped imposingly through the room, idly examining the gaudier features. The boots stopped in front of the altar. A slight, metallic ring. The hand attached to the owner evidently picked up the goblet and didn't set it back down again. There you are. Checkmate. She heard the rumpling of a plastic baggie first being shaken open and then receiving its cargo. Cassie used the cover of the sound to risk quietly letting her breath go and drawing in a fresh one. She was getting dizzy. Her abdomen was itching. Come
3: on, get a move on.
0: The boots didn't respond.
3: Get moving. Go.
0: They didn't. Okay, Mr. Reeves, I've got it. We can go
3: now. Reeves? Very well. That voice. That's where I remember.
0: The boots clopped out the door and around the partition. The entry to the flat slid open, both sets of feet exited, and the door slid closed again. The lights stayed on. Cassie grabbed the edge of the bed and slid herself out from under, moving stiffly to keep her bladder from bursting until she made it to the sand. She pulled the vacuum unit out of the wall and pushed the hose into the saddle dispenser. As she opened her coveralls, she reflexively checked the unit and saw a corner of paper caught between the newly dispensed saddle and the receptacle. Her gloved fingers pried the lip up and slid the paper out. She spread it out on the counter. It was a single, handwritten word, scratched haphazardly, as if with a magician's thumb pencil. Eagle. It was a rough, torn fragment, wet and crumpled. Whatever would have made sense of it had long ago gone down the waste disposal chute. Cassie chewed her lower lip while she finished and disposed of the saddle. She buttoned her coveralls and slipped the scrap into her pocket and walked back into the main room. Something was wrong. Reeves shouldn't be here. She had a leak somewhere. Xylar? It would explain his caginess earlier. Reeves was only a little over a minute out the door. It would take him at least three minutes to get to a crowded corridor or a lift at this time of day. He was a judge, not an operator. He might be clumsy enough to reveal his source. She had to follow him. The table console had been moved and a hole in the floor opened under it. They'd taken the active memory. There was nothing left in here she could grab, even if she knew what she was up to, which she didn't. She stepped over the hole in the floor, but her foot caught on the edge of the table. She stumbled, caught herself on one foot, and as she stood back up, her eyes lit on the one piece of unreligious artwork in the room.
3: It can't be that easy.
0: It was an eagle spread-winged against the sun. There wasn't much time. She had maybe another minute to catch up with Reeves and put a tail on him before he disappeared into the morass of foot traffic teeming through the city. She felt around the edges of the picture frame. It swung out on a hinge, revealing a wall safe. A combination safe. She didn't have time to crack a safe.
3: Think, Cassie, think.
0: She could feel Reeves slipping away.
3: This guy is going to pick a password he didn't have to memorize. A birthday?
0: No. No. Even if it was, she didn't have time to look it up. No good.
3: A significant date.
0: Too many dates on a calendar to bother with.
3: Bible verse.
0: She shook her head. She'd never acquired the habit, and the Bible was far too long of a... Her eyes lit on the bookshelf again.
3: This guy's a Mordnite. There's only one verse that matters. The one that sets them apart from the other sects.
0: She didn't have to blink twice. A secrecy cult? They weren't. They pasted their pet verse up everywhere. Billboards, bumper stickers, evangelism tracks. Mark 1034 B. She typed 10341 into the keypad, and the door slid aside. Inside, there was a stack of coins and a PPD. She didn't have time to examine them. She scooped them up and dumped them into her pockets, stopping just long enough to close the safe behind her before she slipped out the door and, after casting her face down the long end of the corridor, sprinted back down the short end to the commercial district she passed on her way in. End of the main drag. Left led down to the lift at the spaceport with its neo-gothic whalebone struts and pillars. Right led up a gentle grade to the bazaar, the smooth, functioning stylings giving way to the gaudy deco-mouldings that gave the place a sense of occasion. Cassie shook her head. This wasn't a search. Cataloging architectural details was getting in the way. This was a chase. Time to think like Reeves. A board member and a judge didn't do his own legwork unless he wanted to keep it quiet. He searched a man's flat in absentia. She hadn't heard an attempt to serve a warrant. He knew Walters wasn't around. He'd gotten a tip, and he was acting more or less on his own. Even if he was wanting to interview the dockrats, he wouldn't do it himself. He wouldn't go anywhere else but back to the governmental district. Cassie turned left and headed into the bazaar. Its booths, stores, cafes, and street performers that peopled the city's busiest district didn't obscure the wide path running through the center that headed into the large gallery where the lifts dropped down into the heart of the city and to the reservoir. She caught sight of Reeves, his full two-meter frame was hard to miss, walking with a shorter man holding a green tote bag. Only 30 meters ahead, close enough to maintain a loose tail and not get noticed. He was heading for the southwest lift in the gallery. Cassie changed course, dodging between booths to make it to the northwest lift. The square bore of the gallery shot through the entire height of the lunar colony, from the lake level at the bottom to the agricultural dome at the top. At the four corners of the shaft ran a synchronized lift system, with the two cars on the west side riding in lockstep and the two cars on the east side available on demand. She took up a position near the northwest corner, obscured from Reeves' position, and watched him in a mirror sitting on a vendor's table. The express cars ground to a stop heading up. As soon as the doors opened, he moved.
3: He should be going down.
0: She skipped through the throng between herself and the car, squeezing through the entry door just as it was closing. The soft push of acceleration quickly leadened as the car shot upwards. The levels streaked dizzyingly past.
3: Only one more stop before the top.
0: Why would he be trekking all over the city like this? He didn't live up here. He didn't work up here. He was a high court judge who had just personally searched the apartment of someone who hadn't even been reported missing yet. Was he going to track a payoff? The pneumatic brakes hissed as the world outside slowed to an intelligible speed, and then to a stop. Financial district. This would be the place to do it. Cassie risked a peripheral glance along the western wall of the gallery to the throng exiting the other express car. Reeves wasn't getting off. She found a sight line between the shifting bodies leaning against the outfacing window. He stood gazing out the window in the far car, taking in the chasm before him. Cassie adopted a similar position, doing her best to keep her face shielded. Between the coveralls and the denim cap, he shouldn't recognize her, but she wasn't taking any chances at getting made. An amorous couple that slipped aboard at the last minute provided the perfect cover. Heading up for the botanical gardens, no doubt. The weight of motion pressed down on her again, and the two cars shot in tandem the remaining 15 levels straight up to the agricultural dome. Was he going to drop the computer memory somewhere for analysis? There was nothing up there but farms and walking trails and that bloody big... Her train of thought was derailed when the shift to deceleration threw the man she was hiding behind into a sideways tumble, knocking her again into her neighbor. The man turned to her and mumbled a clumsy apology, enunciating poorly as if his lips had forgotten that speech was a part of their functional makeup. The top level came to rest even with the cars, the green cannabis fields and the amber Durham Triticale fields retreating in all directions. There wasn't any good cover. She'd have to stick close to some of the others in the crowd and hope they headed in the same direction that Reeves was heading. She could have stayed on the lift rather than brazen it out. She could have gone back home without learning the truth. But she was a lamprey with a fresh trout. There was no letting go. She filed out with the rest of the tourists, barely registering the pumice-like lunar pebbles crunching beneath her feet as she alighted from the metal platform onto the gravel trail. The dome stretched for a kilometer in every direction, and arched overhead to a height of 125 meters, where the black sky retreated endlessly above it. Through the reflected light from the ground on the glass, no stars were visible. Reeves, on the other hand, she saw losing no time treading briskly south towards the only building of any stature under the dome. It was one that Cassie had seen before. That damnably tall cathedral where they had recruited her after her first job.
3: Oh gods, he's made us. He knows about the dead drop in the confessional.
0: She quickened her footfalls, caring less now for concealment than she did for keeping him in sight. Her hand found its way to an inside pocket and a small dart gun. She drew it out and palmed it as she crested the shallow rise next to a park bench. Down before her in the shallow bowl was the monstrosity, and he was nearly at its door. You've been listening to Episode 14 of Antithesis, Book 1, Predestination, and other Games of Chance, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Stephen H. Wilson as Volish, Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, Chris Lester as Ryzen, Jonathan Sawyer as Ferguson and the computer tech, and Kitty Nakian as the spaceport announcer. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty Nikian, and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2008, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author.
4: Do you like to write? Or have you always wanted to write, but decided that your job, your house, your family, your pets, your political affiliations, your volunteer work, your hobbies, your church, and that ache in your pinky you get on days ending in Y slow you down? Many professional writers have families. Many professional writers keep their day job. Many professional writers live their lives just like we do. Only they write, too like you should be doing i should be writing is the award-winning podcast that explores issues wannabe writers come up against every day everything from characterization to just the difficulty in getting on a writing schedule and because i your host am a writer who's still learning we do a rundown of my progress as well this is not a do as i say not as i do type of show i'm there in the trenches with you Visit IShouldBeWriting.com to subscribe to this free podcast and download past episodes. Because you should be writing.
0: Ugh, 14 episodes in and I'm starting to flag. As the story gets more complex, the episodes keep throwing me curveballs, which sometimes translate into delays but I'll definitely keep pumping them out if all of you keep listening Chris Lester and Steve Wilson the two of you rock beyond words Chris has the perfect voice for Ryzen and I looked a long time to find the voice that would complement Steve's knockdown performance as Volish perfectly anyone who's ever worked a blue collar job has been on at least one side of that dressing down if not both and I'm damned if they didn't put it on tape exactly how I imagined it. They're each podcasters, and very good ones, but you might know that already. Stephen, who you've heard before as Percy Scott and as William Ellison, writes and directs Prometheus Radio Theater, while Chris Lester writes and performs the stories of Metamorph City. You can find links to each in the show notes for this episode, and you can find those at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. And here's where I have to come to a grinding halt and tell you about Metamore, Chris's podcast. Imagine Blade Runner. Now throw in a dash of Name of the Rose, heap every kind of magical knickknack and creature you have ever run into in any fantasy novel anywhere, plus some telepaths and a very well-developed organized crime world, then heap in a generous helping of deep characterization, and you begin to get an idea of what his series is like. Chris is currently serializing his novel Making the Cut, and I end every episode I listen to in a state of wonder and thirst. He's good. Very good. Even if you don't like urban fantasy, you should give it a listen. Try two episodes. It'll only take two to hook you. And prepare to be amazed. You remember last week when I told you we were going to be seeing more religion in the world of Antithesis, right? Well, here you go. This week we met the Mortonites, a males-only Christian sect that takes Morton Smith as their founding theologian. As you can guess from what we've seen so far, they aren't what a lot of Christians would call, well, kosher. But then, at one time, neither were Protestants. Here's the fun part, and something to suck you into Wikipedia and Gutenberg for a few hours. Morton Smith is a real guy, or was, a professor of ancient history at Columbia University. He began his bout with decomposition in 1991, but before he died in 1958. He found a letter at a monastery called Mar Sabah, which purported to be written by Clement of Alexandria, a 2nd century Christian church leader. The letter contains an excerpt of the secret gospel of Mark, an apocryphal parallel gospel that purports to tell of the teachings and events in Jesus' life that weren't quite appropriate for the eyes of novice Christians. The discovery caused a controversy in the field of biblical studies that continues to this day because of what the secret gospel excerpt contained. The excerpt showed Jesus and Lazarus performing a sacred initiation ritual, quote, naked man to naked man, which... For Christians who don't realize that baptisms and a lot of other non-sexual ancient rituals were performed in the nude, sounds kind of like Jesus was gay and raised Lazarus from the dead because he wanted to get laid. Is the fragment a forgery? Now There have been a lot of books written arguing either side, and though I certainly have my opinions on the matter, the honest answer is, hell if I know but the discovery did lend steam to the minority of gay Christians who claimed for other reasons that Jesus was gay. It occurred to me that since there were some ancient Christian Gnostic sects that practiced sex magic, it would be interesting to speculate on what would happen if Morton Smith's discovery took hold in a major way among gay Christians and became a full-blown Catholic sect. Eh, but then again, maybe this is what you get for spending too many hours reading science fiction in church as a kid. Anyway, the whole thing is fun to research online and will lead you down some very bizarre and entertaining rabbit trails. Or, you could just spend that time telling other people about antithesis. Your choice. I know which I would prefer. If you do like this podcast, or even if you find it marginally tolerable, please take a moment of your time to leave a review at iTunes. If you do it before the new year, you'll be entered into a drawing for a free My Name is Joss Kyle t-shirt. It's one of two contests I'm running right now. Of course, if you don't like this podcast, I gotta ask, how the hell did you make it all the way to episode 15? I must admit, I admire that kind of masochism. It shows character. If you're in the San Francisco area this January 10th, come to Borderlands Books at 3 p.m. for Scott Sigler's reading of Contagious and then join Scott Sigler, myself, Chris Lester, and Seth Harwood for drinks, carousing, and general disreputability across the street at the Phoenix Pub. The last meetup we had back in October was a great success. If you weren't there last time, come out and join the fun this time around. If you were, well, we'd certainly love to have you back. If you can't make January 10th, but could make January 3rd, come to Sigler's Reading at the San Mateo Barnes & Noble, and um, I'll be there at that one too, as will your favorite Kiwi and mine, Philippa Valentine. Better yet, come see both. Twice the fun, twice as many podcasters, four times the mania. The feedback line is down right now. I lost the uh, lost the number. I'm going to get a new one up for the next episode. But if you do want to send audio feedback, I would love to hear it. Please record an MP3 or other audio file and mail it in. Most MP3 players now can record audio, and I can actually read almost any format. So as long as it's small enough to make it through the mail server, I'll get it, and I'll play it, and I'll talk right back to you on the feedback show. I've actually been getting a lot of feedback from the last feedback show, which we're now calling Dealing In, so I'm going to aim to drop another one in the first part of the new year. As always, you can send me questions, comments, attaboys, or death threats at dan at jdsawyer.net, or you can leave it on the show blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. Be sure to check out Steampod at steampod.org on December 20th. My story Cold Duty will be running there as a Christmas episode, and it's a bit of a departure from my normal fare think you'll enjoy it i'll be getting the next episode up here as soon as i can right now uh, it's 6 a.m and i've been working all night so i'm pretty wiped but i would be remiss in my duties as author and host if i didn't leave you with the nagging questions how much will cassie learn in the cathedral will doug catch her once she gets in there what will it do to his plans if he does and perhaps most importantly, what will happen to Jade if Cassie finds out about Doug? Find out, soon, and until then remember, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.